Welcome to the Arlington Street Church Podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. There was a man in a hill country, his name was Ephraim. Uh, There was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah. Elkanah had two wives, one named Hannah and the other named Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. Elkanah used to go up from his town to the temple each year to make sacrifice to the god of hosts. Elkanah would give portions of the sacrifice to his wife, Penina, and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give only one portion, although Hannah was his favorite. For God had closed her womb. Moreover, her rival wife would make her miserable by taunting Hannah that God had closed her womb, and this happened year after year. Every time they went up to the house of the Lord, Penina would haunt her so badly that Hannah wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, said to her, Hannah, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? Why are you so sad? Am I not more devoted to you than to ten sons? After they had eaten at the temple, Hannah rose. The priest, Eli, was sitting at the step near the doorpost of the temple. In her wretchedness, Hannah prayed to God, weeping all the while, and she made this vow. O Lord of hosts, if you will look upon my suffering and remember me, if you will grant me a male child, I will dedicate him to the Lord for all the days of his life. As she kept on praying before God, Eli watched her mouth. But Hannah was praying in her heart. Only her lips moved, her voice could not be heard, so Eli thought she was drunk. Eli said to her, how long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Sober up. And Hannah replied, no sir, I am a very unhappy woman. I have drunk no wine or other strong drink, but I have been pouring out my heart to the Lord. Do not take me for a woman of low character. I have only been speaking all this time out of my great anguish and distress. Then go in peace, said Eli, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked. She responded, Thank you for your kindness. So Hannah left, and she ate, and her expression was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, she left with her family for their village.
And now, please welcome our guest preacher this morning, Joanna Lupkin. I've always liked that story about Hannah. I always sensed that there was something powerful hidden within its drama. We heard that story from 1 Samuel in which Hannah, Elkanah's favorite wife, is barren and spends her days weeping and fasting. Elkanah cannot understand her grief and asks why his love isn't as good as ten sons. Hannah's soul is filled with sorrow and bitterness, and she cries and pours out her prayers of her heart in the temple. She makes an elaborate vow to God, promising her future son's life to service. The priest, Ellie, sees her lips moving, but cannot hear her voice, and so, naturally, assumes she is drunk. He reprimands her, and yet, she has the courage to tell him that she was pleading to God out of a deep despair. Ellie replies, go in peace, and may the God of Israel hear your prayer. So here's where I start to really like the story. The narrative concludes, and the woman went on her way and resumed eating, and her expression was no longer downcast. There's a crucial, beautiful detail here. God's answer or not answer to Hannah's prayer was not what changed Hannah's expression and brought her back to life. The human interaction of another person witnessing and acknowledging her pain was what eased her suffering. This is an essential truth. Being seen and acknowledged matters. Being seen and acknowledged can save lives. And I believe that the act of seeing and acknowledging others is a religious and moral imperative. Okay, a show of hands here now. How many of us have had, or are currently having, or are witnessing someone else's awkward teenage years? Yeah, pretty much everybody. Me too. I sought refuge in the synagogue. I was raised Jewish, and getting to cling to the traditions and the prayers gave me a lifeline. If I couldn't figure out the rules of the game of being a teenager, at least I could follow the rules of religious observance and maybe, just maybe, have a place where I could fit in. Now, as you might guess, attending three-hour-long religious services on a Saturday morning wasn't a popular activity for too many other teenagers. When I walked into the sanctuary, I'd look around, trying to see if there were any other 
kids or teenagers anywhere in my age bracket with whom I could sit. There usually weren't. So most Saturdays, I'd sit alone in the back pew. I tried so hard to do everything right, to fit in. Then comes Fred Malkin. Let me tell you about him. Fred was larger than life in every way. He was a regular at the synagogue, seemingly friends with everyone. And Fred, looking back, I realized was one of my first music teachers. He would volunteer at the synagogue's religious school to teach us Jewish music, and he'd always play the piano very jauntily. In synagogue, he would chat loudly during the service, sing loudly, and always make a point to accidentally bonk the microphone when, with his arm when he covered up the Torah. Always. And I will still think of Fred every time I hear this sound. Kim does it a lot, and I think of Fred. One Saturday, I was in my usual spot in the otherwise empty back pew. The congregation and I were all standing and singing for one of the prayers, and Fred walked over behind my pew. I looked back at him, a little startled, and caught his eye. With a faint smile on his face, he said, I see you. My first thought was that he must have been talking to somebody else. My second thought, I see you, is a rather creepy thing to say to somebody. And the third thought, he must have seen me doing something wrong. But I was trying so hard. Um, I said. I see you, Fred repeated. I see that you come every week and you sit by yourself, and I see how much you want to belong. You seem lonely. Sometimes I feel lonely here too. Well, this boggled my 14-year-old mind. Fred, the biggest personality in the room, could feel lonely here? He went on, when I'm feeling lonely and worrying about fitting in, I sing harmonies. I'm going to teach you to sing harmonies too. And then he walked off, leaving me stunned, but glowing a little. I felt seen. I felt acknowledged. I felt the constraining bonds of loneliness begin to loosen. Like Hannah, someone recognized and gave voice to my pain and to my hope. And Fred, in his wisdom, gave me a way in. 
True to his word, in the coming weeks, I'd hear him booming out a harmony from the other side of the room, and he'd catch my eye and smile, maybe wink a little bit, and he'd point to his ear, signaling for me to try and listen and catch on. I'd smile, nod back a little bit, and listen. Pretty soon, I was not only joining in, but I was starting to improvise my own notes. And Fred and I would build these soaring harmonies over the congregation's ancient melodies. And people would sometimes turn around in the pew to try and figure out where it was coming from, and they'd see me. And then, miracle of miracles, to an awkward person, they would have a reason to talk to me after the service over pastries. There were two amazing gifts that Fred gave me. The first was an understanding of how I could choose to be a part of that community. I had been straining so hard to fit in to sing the same melodies as everyone else. And I couldn't stop feeling like I came up short. Singing harmonies was literally and metaphorically a way to be myself, to sing my own song, and to let my originality, my true self, enhance everyone else's experience. When we sang harmonies, we were in effect saying, I am here. I am who I am. I will turn my loneliness into beauty. And the second gift Fred gave was companionship. Even though we rarely spoke to each other directly before that day or even after, I knew that Fred was an ally, a friend on the journey, and that made all the difference. I thought of Fred when I heard a TED Talk that somebody had posted on Facebook from Drew Dudley, who's a leadership educator based out of Toronto. And Drew told this story. I went to school in a little place called Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick. And on my last day there, a girl came up to me and she said, I remember the first time I saw you and the first time we met. And then she told a story that had happened four years earlier. She said, on the day before I started university, I was in a hotel room with my mom and my dad, and I was so scared and so convinced that I couldn't do this. I couldn't go to university. I wasn't ready, and I burst into tears. And my mom and my dad were amazing. They were like, look, we know you're scared, but let's just go tomorrow. Let's go to the first day, and if at any point you feel as if you can't do it, that's fine. Just tell us, and we'll take you home. We love you no matter what.
And so she continues to tell Drew, so I went the next day and I was standing in line getting ready for registration. And I looked around and I just knew I couldn't do it. I knew I wasn't ready. I knew I had to quit. And she says, I made that decision and as soon as I made it, there was this incredible feeling of peace. And I turned to my mom and my dad to tell them that we needed to go home. And just at that moment, you came out of the student union building wearing the stupidest hat I have ever seen in my life. It was awesome. And you had this big sign promoting the charity Shinerama, which is Students Fighting Cystic Fibrosis. And you had a bucket full of lollipops. And you were walking along and you were handing out the lollipops to people in line and talking about Shinerama. And all of a sudden, you got to me and you stopped and you stared. It was sketchy. And you looked at the guy next to me in line and you smiled and reached into your bucket and pulled out a lollipop. And you held it to him and you said, you need to give a lollipop to that beautiful person standing in line next to you. And she said, I have never seen anyone get more embarrassed more quickly in my life. He turned beet red and he wouldn't even look at me. He just kind of held out the lollipop like this. And I felt so bad for this dude that I took the lollipop. And as soon as I did, you got this incredibly severe look on your face and you said to my mom and my dad, look at that, look at that. The first day away from home and already she is taking candy from a stranger? And she said, everybody lost it. 20 feet in every direction, everyone started to howl. And I know this is cheesy and I don't know why I'm telling you this, but in that moment, when everybody started laughing, I knew that I shouldn't quit. I knew that I was where I was supposed to be. I knew I was home. And I haven't spoken to you once in the four years since that day, but I heard that you were graduating and I had to come up and tell you, you have been an incredibly per important person in my life and I'm gonna miss you. Good luck. And she walks away, Drew continues, and I am flattened. And she gets about six feet away and she turns around and she smiles and she says, you should probably know this too. I'm still dating that guy four years later. A year and a half after I moved to Toronto, Drew says, I got an invitation to their wedding. Here's the kicker, Drew continued. I don't remember that. I have no recollection of that moment and I have searched my memory banks because it's funny and I should remember doing it, but I don't. And that was such an eye-opening, transformative moment for me 
to think that maybe the biggest impact I had ever had on anyone's life was a moment I didn't even remember. Drew concludes his TED Talk by asking his audience this question, or these questions, and I'm going to ask us here today, too. How many of you all have had a lollipop moment, a moment where someone said or did something that you feel fundamentally made your life better? Show of hands. Yeah. Okay. And how many of us have told the person that they did it? Far fewer hands. See, why is that, Drew asks. We celebrate birthdays where all you have to do is not die for 365 days. And yet, we let the people who have made our lives better walk around without knowing it. And every single one of you, every single one of you, have been the catalyst for a lollipop moment. You have made your life better by something you said or did. And if you think you haven't, just think of all those hands that didn't go up when I asked if we had told those people. You're just one of those people who hasn't been told yet. In his book, All I Really Need to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten, UU Minister Robert Fulgham said, you may never have proof of your importance, but you are more important than you think. There are always those who couldn't do without you. The rub is that you don't always know who. So here and now, this is my wish for us. Let's let each other know. Let's thank those who have made our lives fundamentally better by seeing us when we felt invisible. And let's pay that kindness forward tenfold and see others. And in case no one has said this to you recently, you are important and I see you and I am so glad that you are here. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a donation by checking the mail or through our website.